Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Italy, Brazil, Israel, the United Kingdom, the United States, and a see you in hell from Argentina. Whew, that's uh, that's a lot of right-wing shit to talk about. Let's get started. Last Friday was the 100th anniversary of the March on Rome. This was a march from throughout Italy onto the Italian capital of Rome by the Italian fascist party led by Benito Mussolini. It both commemorated and cemented their control in that country. It is typically marked as the beginning of the rule of the fascist party in Italy, and as such, it is the origin point of fascist governance in the history of the world. In Brazil, on Sunday, October the 30th, Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing current president of Brazil, was roundly defeated, although narrowly defeated, by his opponent, the incoming president of Brazil, Lula da Silva. Now, in my special episode on this, you'll hear more details about exactly what happened on that day, but the short version is that Bolsonaro and his allies in the military police, specifically the Federal Highway Police of Brazil, attempted a coup, a sort of like passive coup by keeping Lula voters out of the polls. This failed, and Lula did win. Bolsonaro has yet to acknowledge Lula's victory, although it does seem as if he is going forward with the actual normal transition of power. Bolsonaro's supporters have been more reticent to accept the results of the election than Bolsonaro himself. They have blockaded roads, truckers blocking roads, just parking them. People have been dumping things in highways like, you know, concrete or dirt in order to prevent travel. Several Bolsonaro supporters blockaded the main airport in Sao Paulo. This is the main international airport. Yesterday, on November the 2nd, in the afternoon, Bolsonaro spoke trying to get his supporters to stop these blockades. You know, he knows that they are a losing strategy, both electorally and legally, because he is trying to set himself up as, you know, the law-abiding candidate and to claim that Lula stole the election from him. We're going to have to see more of that in the future. Moving on to Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu is set to return as the Prime Minister of Israel after an election on November 1st. This is the most recent in a several-year cycle of elections in Israel. This is likely to produce a somewhat more stable government, as Netanyahu's party got a lot of the votes. However, he cannot govern alone. He is going to be governing in a coalition with an extreme nationalist party called the Religious Zionism Party which has previously advocated for the deportation of politicians who they think are disloyal to the country. Uh, it's connected to former right-wing terrorist organizations, and it has used explicitly anti-Muslim slurs in its campaign material. In the United Kingdom, a gas bomb, a petrol bomb, has been thrown at migrant centers in Dover. Uh, this is in the southeast of England. Only the attacker was killed. Moving on to the United States, there is increasing evidence of interaction between people who were involved in the January 6th attempted coup in 2021 and the political campaigns of the GOP today. Specifically, the campaign of Dr. Mehmet Oz, who is the GOP candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania, uh, is known to have two staffers on his payroll who marched on January 6th. Elon Musk has purchased Twitter.com, uh, which has resulted in a roller coaster of changes to how the website is supposed to work. Musk is famously a sort of like provocateur figure. You know, he he clearly fancies himself as a, a kind of like uh, 
adolescent cool guy who like tells it like it is and like basically acts like that kind of drunk and extremely high older brother figure in the basement of like a stoner den. You know, he, he thinks that he's smart and is saying super smart stuff. His point, his goal apparently is to make Twitter a, you know, supposedly more balanced place. He thinks that it is balanced in favor of leftists. And so he, he wants to try to end that. This means that he has for a while taken away the ability of Twitter moderators and Twitter employees to stop hate speech. Uh, it seems as if, uh, as of my recording this on November 2nd, that normal moderation has returned to Twitter. However, this is an extremely volatile situation and is an extremely dangerous one. The right wing uses Twitter in order to galvanize new supporters, in order to identify targets, and in order to direct specific harassment at them. Uh, and so the possibility that this platform could be usable in this way again is extremely dangerous and uh, terrifying. In Wisconsin, state officials are boasting, just like completely openly, that after this election, they will never lose in the state again. Specifically, the GOP of Wisconsin is just openly saying that they are intending to govern the state after their, you know, presumed ahead victories in the state legislature and possibly the governorship of the state, that they will gerrymander the state districts in Wisconsin to prevent Wisconsin from ever being governed by Democrats ever again. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty awful. You know, they're just like openly saying like, hey, we're opposed to democracy and we want to organize the state such that we will always win, period. And uh, th this is not paraphrasing what they're saying. They, they just, they're, they said, we will never lose an election again. Further on in the United States, uh, Christopher Polis, a neo-Nazi, is working to make an ethnostate, what he calls a white ethnostate, in the state of Maine. Now, Maine is already one of the whitest states in the United States, and what he wants is to make it a sort of like white haven. You know, he's trying to, to transform Maine into a white nationalist state. We now know that he is working closely with neo-Nazi organizations in New England, uh, one of which is called NSC-131. Uh, they have engaged in open marches trying to harass Somali immigrants who live in various cities in Maine. These kinds of efforts have been tried previously in the United States, usually on these sort of like rural northern fringes of the country. The state of Oregon famously began as a white ethnostate. You know, it tried to prevent the immigration of black people to Oregon. There have been previous attempts in the Dakotas by white nationalists to create a white nationalist city or a white nationalist county in that state. However, in the Dakotas, these people were immediately defeated by quickly mobilizing Native American citizens uh, of the United States and citizens of Native American nations within the United States who uh, stopped these uh, white nationalist idiots and just kind of like drummed them out of town. Um, it is relatively less likely that this kind of opposition will be occurring in the state of Maine because, as I said before, this is an extremely white part of the country already. It's entirely possible that these efforts will work unless they are stopped, and it's not particularly likely that they will be. And yeah, speaking of right-wing attempts at taking over parts of the United States, this is the big news in the United States right now, is that right-wing political violence is massively on the uptick. We are seeing reports from all over the country of relatively small candidates, like candidates for state and local offices, being attacked by right-wing militants, being targeted by right-wing militants. One example is Richard Ringer, uh, who is a candidate for state house in Pennsylvania. 
He was targeted in his home and was knocked unconscious for several hours by an assailant. He has previously been targeted with graffiti at his home. You know, this graffiti threatened him with his death and also said that his uh, race, you know, his, um, his candidacy would be ending. The federal government is expressing serious concern about armed presences at ballot drop-offs in Arizona. These are people who are trying to intimidate voters. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to make it scarier to vote. These right-wing people who are armed at these ballot boxes, they say that they're there in order to, you know, prevent votes from being stolen or shenanigans or something, right? You know, they, they think that the vote's going to be stolen because that narrative is just like dominant on the right wing right now. Continuing on in Arizona, somebody broke into the home of Arizona Democratic gubernatorial candidate Katie Hobbs. An arrest was made in this invasion of a home. And uh, yeah, the, the, big, the big event in right-wing political violence in the United States occurred this week in San Francisco. Paul Pelosi, the husband of the current Speaker of the House and first female Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, was seriously injured by an attacker named David DePap. DePap entered the Pelosi's home wielding a hammer, and he demanded Paul Pelosi tell him where Nancy Pelosi was. He was looking for Nancy Pelosi. Paul Pelosi was able to get into the bathroom to call the police. The police arrived to see Paul Pelosi and David DePap wrestling for the hammer that David DePap had brought. The police watched and did not stop David DePap as he hit Paul Pelosi, who is an elderly man, in the head with this hammer, giving Pelosi a skull fracture for which he had to have brain surgery this week. David DePap was armed not just with this hammer, but also with objects that might have been able to restrain someone. Specifically, he later said that he had invaded the home of the Pelosi's in an attempt to kidnap Nancy Pelosi and torture her at a different location. It is clear from David DePap's posts on social media, from his blog, and from other sources that he is a right-wing figure. He makes posts all the time about anti-Semitism. He has a series of white pride slogans on a lot of his social media profiles. He believes in the QAnon conspiracies. And he has even specifically said that he was galvanized, that he was radicalized by the Gamergate conspiracy theory, which uh, developed online in the mid-2010s and was specifically targeted against women, saying that they had, you know, quote-unquote, ruined the video gaming experience. Uh, this is a very common origin point for the radicalization of young white men in particular. DePape's daughter and his daughter's mother, uh, who is not in a relationship with him, uh, have said that they are not shocked to learn this about DePape's, you know, activity, that they're not shocked to learn that he tried to murder the husband of the Speaker of the House and that he only did that because he wasn't able to murder the Speaker of the House. The right wing, however, is trying to push a different narrative here. They're saying that DePap is, in fact, a leftist. Here, they usually cite the fact that, you know, back in the early 2000s or in the early 2010s, he said that he was a leftist. That's ignoring the last seven years of the man's life. They're citing the fact that he has kind of long hair and lives in Berkeley. You know, this is like literal 60s stereotyping about people and saying that, well, you know, he can't be in the right wing because he lives in Berkeley. I mean, like, that's... This is completely ridiculous. When the right wing is not trying to blame the left for this activity, saying that, you know, it's like some drug-addled hippie in a, you know, uh, blue state city, 
that is engaging in this kind of violence, they are praising DePape and saying that he is a hero, uh, that, you know, he did something good. They're making memes about his violence, um, jokes about open carry hammers. Uh, it's really disgusting. Underneath this all is the elephant in the room, and I mean that literally. It's an elephant. It's the GOP. The fact is that somebody tried to murder the Speaker of the House, that he entered her home and only wasn't able to murder her because she happened to not be there at the time. Now, it's very likely that the security on the building would have been higher if Pelosi had, in fact, been there. But still, it, it doesn't seem like the narrative here is that, like, yeah, political violence has gotten so bad that somebody tried to kill the Speaker of the House a week before the midterm elections. The most recent development in this story is that David DePape has pled not guilty on all charges relating to his assault on Paul Pelosi. Uh, this is just going to be another one of those court cases that gets followed and obscured into oblivion as it exits the zeitgeist and people forget the important thing, this attempted murder of both Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history, except this time I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm celebrating not the death of a person, but the end of well, a process. Specifically, I'm talking about El Proceso, which is the most recent dictatorship in Argentina. This government was called the National Reorganization Process, or El Proceso. The government took power in 1976 in the wake of political turmoil that resulted from the death of Juan Perón, the two-time president of Argentina who had returned from exile some years earlier to serve as president. When Perón returned, he died a couple years later, which resulted in the succession of his wife, Isabella Perón, to the presidency of Argentina. Uh, just to note, this is not Eva Perón. Eva Perón died in 1952. And this succession makes Isabella Perón the first female president of any country ever. Isabella Perón's governance was hotly contested in Argentina and resulted in this dictatorship in 1976. The process, El Proceso, was the most violent of the South American right-wing governments, killing upwards of 30,000 people in Argentina, torturing so many of those people whom it murdered, torturing many other people whom it did not, jailing many people, exiling others. It worked in Central America to develop the Contras, uh, an organization of right-wing militants who worked against left-wing forces in Nicaragua. It worked with other right-wing dictatorships in Latin America in the uh, Plan Condor, the Condor Plan, which was a uh, power-sharing agreement and intelligence-sharing agreement amongst right-wing dictatorships trying to prevent the rise of the left in the region. So yeah, the Proceso is the poster child for an, a terrible right-wing dictatorship, specifically and especially in South America. The Proceso was led by a series of military juntas, uh, which shared power amongst the branches of the Argentine military. It was finally brought down by its terrible loss in the Malvinas Falklands War against the United Kingdom, uh, which was especially embarrassing for, you know, a military government that claimed that it was trying to cleanse the country in order to make it more militarily powerful. In its embarrassment, the junta agrees to hold elections in 1983. This results in the election of Raúl Alfonsín, on October 30th, 1983. This election on October 30th, 1983, marks the return of constitutional rule in Argentina. So, to the Proceso de Reorganización Nacional, to the National Reorganization Process, 
We will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And I mean that sincerely. That's how people see the podcast. Uh, Share it uh, with people on whatever social media you're using. If you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.